So Gabe, what are we talking about today? Well, today we're going to talk about uh, fear and especially fear-based parenting and maybe some ways that we can overcome that so that we can be life givers with our kids and not necessarily life takers. So I was sitting at Chipotle about two weeks ago eating a salad and I was thinking about our last podcast and I was thinking about the verse in Hebrews where it says that Jesus has freed those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So he's freed us from this fear of death. And I was just, I was just kind of munching and thinking, and it occurred to me that I am, I am not afraid to die anymore. I'm just not like, I, I don't want to die, but I certainly don't have this fear of death, but I also don't have a fear of death for other people. I don't want other people to pass away, of course, but I don't have this fear for them, especially my kids. And that was an aha moment for me because I know so many evangelical Christian parents who are just living in fear about their kids because their kids aren't, quote, walking with the Lord. And so then, you know, I kind of shot that back to you and, you know, you and I were texting back and forth. And I think so much of what we do as parents is fear based. And so that's what this podcast is going to be about, a little bit about how do we overcome fear-based parenting and just being fear-based in general. Yeah, I think for me, it was uh, probably about this time five years ago when our family, Minnie and I, were making this decision to move to Mexico. And I remember telling Minnie, you know what, I can trust God with our lives, with my life, with your life, and make this decision, let's go to Mexico. But then going, but trusting God with my kids in this move, because they've grown up in Northern California. That's all they know. They have friends there. They have roots there. And now to move them to a foreign country to go like, whoa, wait a minute. God, you're, if you call Phil and Mindy, that's one thing. But now you're calling our family, and I need to trust you with my kids that they're not going to be angry at us for the next, you know, however long. And they, you know, one of them says, I can't wait till I get out of this house and move them back home. And that, you know, I don't want anything to do with Jesus because he's, he moved me out of here. And, but to come to a realization that, you know what, I need to trust God with my kids and not make this decision based upon fear, but out of trust. And so we, we made the move and, and, and I agree. There's, I, I've seen um, parents working with teenagers, you know, and, and parents of teenagers for 20 some years now. There is that sense of fear that I, they they need to be at church. They need to make this decision. And if they don't, then there's this fear of death that, well, if they die, then they may spend eternity in hell. And so as a result, there's a lot of parenting that is done out of that base of fear. And we many times forget what happened on Easter, that Jesus freed us from this fear of fear of dying, fear of death. I mean, I, I don't want to die. I don't want my kids to die. But the fear of what happens maybe next, I'm not afraid of that. Yeah, uh, me, me neither. So I have very similar experiences, you moving, moving our whole family, you know, down to Mexico as well and spending so much time here. We at the orphanage, we have a sibling group, and this happened a couple of years ago, but we have a sibling group and one of the siblings was not living for whatever reason at the orphanage. She was early teens, 14, maybe, maybe 15. And 
she was known to some of our staff. And one day we got the news that, that she died. I don't remember how she, how she died, but it was devastating to her siblings. And it was devastating to some of our staff who, who knew her. And I remember in staff meeting, having this conversation, you know, one of the, one of our staff was, was in tears because she said, this girl, she knows for a fact, did not know the Lord, was not walking with the Lord, was not attending church. And she was just devastated because she knew that this girl was now going to be in, in hell, eternally separated from God. And it, she was uncon- inconsolable. And I remember sitting there thinking how differently I saw this situation. This was a young girl who had been abused. She had lived on the streets. She had never had a good father figure. For all I know, she may or may not have ever met a Christian who was life-giving and loving towards her. And now she, now she was, she, her, her life on earth ended. See, to me, I think she, and in that moment when she passed away, I think she, she came face to face with the father she never had. I think in that moment, rather than her being in hell for eternity, I think there was healing involved in restoration Freedom. and her heart, the wounds in her heart were, 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 begin, were becoming healed because she got to see God for who he really is. And we know that God is self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering love. So, yeah, I just didn't see it the same way some other people on our team saw it. But I think I, I know a lot of parents have this fear that if it's like almost they, they don't trust God if something would happen to their children. Um, and I understand that fear because our kids are the most important thing in our yeah. life. And they're, they're the thing we're most tender and most sensitive about. But I know quite a few Christian parents who live in this fear because their kids aren't walking with the Lord in the way that they want them to. And so as a result, the, the way of parenting then within that fear is, I think, many times out of control. You know, they're trying to control the situation. It's done not out of a sense of joy, but fear. I mean, what? How, how else would that look like and and play out in in just kind of a practical way? You think? Well, let's let's consider a few scriptures first, too. Um, and what 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 scripture teaches us is that we don't have to be enslaved to the fear of death anymore because of what Christ did by being by crucified and resurrected. Corinthians says, death has been swallowed up in victory. That's good news. And he says, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? So there's something, death has been defeated by Christ. There was this famous medieval mystic called, her name was Julian of Norwich, and she famously heard God speak to her in one of her visions. She heard God say, all is well, and all will be well. So I think there's something at the core of us as parents. If we can let the the true peace and love of God the Father seep down into our hearts, we can live knowing that all is well and all will be well. But we have to truly believe that. 
And for me, that's how I see it now. That's how, that's that's my that's my posture towards death. That God forbid, if something happened to one of my kids, there would be sting in that. Mm-hmm. There would be a terrible sting. I mean, our relationship would be broken. And so, yeah, there's still sting in death, but but I trust the one who they're whose hands they're going into mm-hmm. to to love them and restore them no matter what season of life they die in, whether it's a close season or a far away season from God. I can trust God no matter what, because I think God is good. Yeah, just that verse of, oh, death, where's your victory? I just think that that's, you know, there is no more victory in death anymore. Jesus has the victory in all of that. And related to this was, a question I read recently. I don't remember who who had this question out there, so it's not original to me, but would you follow Jesus if there was no hell for him to save you from? That a lot of times our the evangelical Christians and parents, our drive in life is to not go to hell or to get other people to not go to hell. And there's that fear of it. And so, but even in the story of the rich young ruler, where the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to have eternal life? He's seeking out, how do I get to heaven when I die? And Jesus, I mean, how I was raised in, in quote-unquote, presenting the gospel was, you, you hope for that question. I mean, that's what you want. And because then you can lay out the Romans' road of salvation or whatever, <laughs> and, you know, draw it, draw it on a napkin, and this is how it happens, say a prayer, you know. But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't even say, like, believe me and, you know, say this prayer to me. What's he tell him? He says, go sell everything you have and then come follow me. That it was about following Jesus, not about what happens when you die. And actually, I think in it, within our culture, and, and maybe that's changed some within the last year with the pandemic, but I, I, I get this. I mean, the bigger questions are not what happens to me after I die. I think there are other bigger questions that are more about the here and now. How does this play out now? Because I, because I know for me, it, it, if there was a fear, it is for for, for my kids that they, you know, that they fall into some addictions, or they more so hell on this earth than I am fearful of what happens after they die. But I just find it interesting that even in the moment of when Jesus was presented with the question of what must I do to have eternal life, he doesn't give the answer that I was trained to give. He says, come follow me. Well, I feel like as Christians, we have a lot of certainty, or at least we think we're very certain about what happens after we die. So Mm. either you have prayed the prayer and you've gone to church and you're going to heaven, or you didn't pray the prayer or you're not going to church. And so therefore you're going to go to hell. You know, I feel like there's, I feel like we have a lot of certainty there when maybe there should be a little bit more mystery. There was a guy named George MacDonald who lived, he was a Scottish writer 200 years ago. He wrote a book called Fantasties that uh, C.S. Lewis picked up as a young young man. At the time, Lewis was an atheist, a committed atheist, pick up, picked up this book, Fantasties, by George MacDonald, who was already dead, read it, and there was something about the way MacDonald wrote that Lewis said he had never read any writer that so consistently was close to the spirit of Christ, so, so close to the heart of God. And it just compelled Lewis to read more of his writings. 
And eventually he said that McDonald pulled him out of his atheism because McDonald wrote of such a wonderful, beautiful, uh, incredible God of love. And so that's how Lewis, uh, that was part of his story. And McDonald, when he was a pastor, he started his career as a pastor. He preached a sermon on repentance after death. So mm -hmm. posthumous repentance. And the church elders were so furious at him. They didn't have the guts to fire him because he had a wife and kids. So what they did, they did something worse. They cut his salary in half and he could not afford to live on that salary, but he didn't quit. And there were moments over the next year or two where he was close, he and his family were close to starvation, except for the unexpected uh, sudden gift from of food from somewhere. And so he just lived through this hardship all because he had the audacity to suggest that maybe after death, we get another chance because maybe it's after death that we get to see Christ for who he really is and God for who he really is instead of through some, you know, annoying, selfish uh, Christian who has the right words, but doesn't really project the love and goodness of God the Father. So I, don't, I think we don't need, I, I think we need a little less certainty of what happens to us after death, because I think there are a lot more scripturally based theories out there that, that we can investigate. And I tend to hang my hat on the ones that demonstrate God is self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering love. And that's what George MacDonald did too. Yeah, and I and I would, when, when I think about the context of, the, of this conversation, that how can I, a finite man, understand an infinite God? Like, how can I possibly understand eternity? I can't. I, I remember as a teenager going, how long is eternity? And it would keep me up at night because I couldn't get there. Um, but... It was the same thing is true with when it comes to God's love. How could I possibly understand the height, the depth, the width, the length of God's love in a finite mind? And how could someone else understand that through my communication with them? And, you know, I, I have to think there's some sort of grace on the other side that God knows that we're all we're all screwed up and we all do things in ways that uh, don't always project God's love. And it just reminded me of a verse we we mentioned before, but it's Christ's love that compels us. It's his love that compels us, not the fear mm -hmm. of hell or the fear of yeah whatever. It is his love. And I wonder when it comes to our parenting, well, I don't wonder, but I think when it comes to our parenting, it's it's that love for our kids, not out of fear, but out of joy for them. Yeah, and scripture is also clear about how long God's love is towards us. I mean, Psalm 136 is very clear. Uh, his love endures forever. Forever. Yes, forever. And uh, not just for those I mean, who say the prayer, and when they die, his love endures forever just for them. It's an all-inclusive love. Yeah, Psalm 136, his love endures forever. It says it 26 times over and over and over again. His love does not stop for us when we die. It endures forever. It never stops. How many times does it say that again? Uh, I think 26. 
Sounds like That's he's how many to, I counted. Sounds like he's trying to communicate something to us. <laughs> you think so? His love endures forever, not until we die. So, so his parents, you know, I, I know the typical American mother is already stressed out, exhausted, worried, and frustrated. I mean, the typical mother feels a tremendous amount of anxiety about being a mother. And then if you combine that with this deeper fear and guilt, when there are children who aren't walking with the Lord, there is just a tremendous amount of fear, anxiety, and guilt. And and the parents ask, what did I do wrong? Mm-hmm. That And so we start this reactive parenting and we start to apply pressure to our kids that they need to go to church or live a certain way or do this or not do that. Um, all of which comes from a pure heart, I think, from the parent, because so. we, we have our best our kids' best interests in mind. And so, but we, we start to carry this anxiety, which affects the family. And so this anxiety and pressure is counterproductive to a safe, joyful, and peaceful home. So what I realized as I was sitting there at Chipotle, just about parenting, was that I can either be life-sucking and hard to be around with my kids, or I can be life-giving and joyful. And I want the latter. I want my kids' primary response after spending time with me is to think he was life-giving and he was joyful. There's this also, Phil, there's this term called a non-anxious presence Mm -hmm. that in family systems theory, it's a very critical component that every, every relational network, whether it's family, church, whatever, it needs a non-anxious presence, meaning it needs somebody in the family, no matter what disaster um, is going on, to be a non-anxious presence, some somebody who's calm, who's cool, who's collected, who has genuine peace about the situation. And our kids need us to be non-anxious presence in their life because they're going to make mistakes. They're going to screw up. Lord knows I did, and mm-hmm. I continue to. And I want to be that joyful, non-anxious presence in their life that is safe and trusted, and they know I won't overreact if something's going wrong. I'm not going to mirror their anxiety or insecurities. I can be calm and cool because all is well and all will be well. And I believe that in my core. It's not that you're not emotional. It's it's no. You're definitely emotionally connected. It's the being not anxious. You're involved in the situation, but you, I, I choose. It's it's a decision. It's a choice to be non anxious about it and to trust that all is well and all will be well. And here's where it comes from for me, because the Christ in me is a non-anxious presence within me. So it's not a power that I get on my own. It is from the risen Christ who abides in me, who is never shocked. He is never insecure. He's never fearful. He, he is this abiding, steadfast presence in me. And that's where it comes from. And that's why we don't have to parent out of fear. We can parent out of love and trust 
knowing that God is good and he's self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering love. And that takes away the fear in my life. I can be a proactive, non-anxious, joyful parent to my kids. So here are three practical takeaways for me, Phil. First is I don't need to fear death for myself or for anyone else. Number two, I can be a non-anxious presence in my most precious relationships with my wife and kids. I can be that non-anxious presence. And number three, I can be that way because Christ himself is a non-anxious presence in me. What about you? And I, I would affirm all of those and those would be things that you know I would want to practice. I think the for me is mainly just one big takeaway and that is I can trust God with my kids. I don't need to be the controlling factor trying to manipulate things. Because of the first three things you said, I can trust God with my kids. That he loves them more than I do, surprisingly. <laughs> but it shouldn't be surprisingly. He loves them more than I do. He knows how they click, how they tick, and how to reach them. And it's for me to join God in raising my kids and not ask God to join me in raising my kids because I can trust mm. God in raising my kids. Mm.